Next week, we're going to be continuing our study in Romans, but uh, with a new theme that we're calling The Verdict, and there's some information there at the bottom of the link about where we're going as we launch into Romans chapters 4, 5, and 6, which will take us right up to Christmas time, believe it or not. So um, I've been enjoying this study in Romans, and uh, today we'll be getting to the crux of things. Uh, as we get to the end of Romans chapter 3, if you've been reading ahead, you know that here at the end of Romans chapter 3, Paul really jumps in to the very uh, crux of what it means to be saved and, and what the message of the gospel is. And so uh, we're talking about how we get in to the family of God, and I've been using the words insiders and outsiders, and Paul keeps coming back to this theme again and again about uh, Jews and Gentiles and insiders and outsiders and how we get in. And uh, in this last message of this section, we're going to be talking about shaking up insiders. And just before we jump into all of this stuff, uh, I just wanted to share with you uh, kind of my mea culpa to those of you that I may have offended with my remarks about cats last week. Um, if you were here, you'll remember that video and my unkind comments to cats. I went home Sunday afternoon, and I had yet not yet turned over our calendar for the month. And, uh, and so I turned over the calendar, and this is what I get to look at for all of October. So um, you can call it karma, or you can call it the wrath of God, or you can call it justice, or you get what you deserve, or whatever. But... Uh, I don't think I'm going to like cats any better by the end of October. In fact, I'm just not looking at that calendar much. <laughs> so there's, uh, there are certain places where we feel like outsiders quite often. As a pastor, I am keenly aware that when people come and visit Connect Church, that they probably feel like outsiders when they first come in. I won't take a show of hands this morning, but uh, I have visited enough churches in my life to know that whenever I'm in a strange city and I want to go to a church, I walk in, it's really uncomfortable to visit a church for a first time. And, uh, and, and I think you know what I, what I mean. There's lots of places in our lives where you feel like an outsider when you first walk in. My brother-in-law had uh, an experience a couple of weeks ago, and uh, he had to go to the emergency room at the hospital in Great Falls, and that was one of, the, one of the places where he just felt like an outsider, and maybe you felt this way too, when you have a medical emergency, and you go to the emergency room, and you walk in, and there's that big glass wall, and you can see all these people sitting at a desk, and, and they look like they're pretending to be busy, but they can't be bothered with you. Have you had that experience, ever, anybody at all? My brother-in-law had this experience. He was uh, working one day a couple of weeks ago, and all of a sudden he got a bloody nose. And, and at first he thought, you know, it's, no really, it's not really a big deal, but, uh, you know, he tried pinching it, and then he tried ice and all the things you normally do with a bloody nose, and normally it'll just go away, but his nose would not stop bleeding. So my sister took him to the urgent care in Great Falls, and they took a look up his nose and found that he had opened up an artery in his nose. It wasn't just a bloody nose, but he was bleeding from an artery. I didn't even know there were arteries in your nose. You know, I thought they were like here or whatever. Uh, 
off. But anyway, he was just gushing blood. So the doctor took one of those things and they tried to cauterize that artery and, and get it to stop bleeding. And the next morning, Ron was still bleeding profusely from his nose. So my sister took him to the emergency department there in Great Falls. And uh, and they just couldn't be bothered with poor Ron. He had a bucket. He was carrying a bucket and was bleeding into the bucket. Uh, my sister told me that they waited for a couple of hours in that emergency room while he's bleeding. And by the time they took him into the 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 exam room and they emptied the bucket that it had coagulated so much that it clogged the sink that they poured it down. <laughs> Have I grossed you out yet? All right. That was my point. Good. All right. <laughs> More donuts. More donuts. Less blood. Yes. <laughs> but I tell you that story because uh, for two reasons. Uh, it, it illustrates this idea that, that it's easy for us to feel like outsiders, but also because blood is such an important part of our human bodies. And I don't know if you've ever really taken much time. Most people are kind of squeamish, and it was fun to watch your faces when I'm telling that story. Everybody's going like this. Nobody wants to think about a bucket of coagulated blood. But see, I grossed you out again, didn't I, Jody? There you go. <laughs> Do I need to bring you a bucket? Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> but blood is vitally important to our human bodies, right? If you have some sort of an injury where you begin to lose blood, you can lose your life in a very short period of time, even though every other system in your body is working normally. My brother-in-law could have literally died from a bloody nose if it had gone on long enough, and he's just fine. He's doing fine. So don't worry about my brother-in-law. But, but blood is critically important to life. And, and I don't know if you've ever really thought about this, but I believe that God created it this way for a purpose. Blood is critically important to our life. And not just our physical bodies, but there is a spiritual principle that we're going to be talking about today as we talk about shaken up insiders. We're going to be talking about how the blood of Jesus himself is, is effective at bringing us to becoming a part of God's family, effectively becoming insiders. And so... Whereas there's a lot of people in today's culture that would rather not talk about the sacrifice of Jesus. They'd rather not talk about the blood of Jesus. God actually created it this way for a very important purpose. And uh, as we pull apart Romans chapter 3, uh, we're going to be taking a look at the importance and the value of the blood of Jesus this morning. So if you've got your Bibles with you today, I want to encourage you uh, to open up to Romans chapter 3, and if you don't have a Bible, we've got a stack back there that you can borrow or even take with you if you don't own a Bible, or if you'd uh, like to use your phone or an iPad or whatever you have, feel free to follow along with this this morning. I think it'll be valuable for you to have Romans chapter 3 open so you can refer back to it as we're talking through this this morning. Uh, the critical verses will be up on the screen as well. But I want to start by connecting what we're talking about today back to the very beginning. In week one of this message series, we talked about Paul's theme verse for the whole book of Romans uh, that we find in chapter one, where he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
And right in that first verse, he talks about Jews and Gentiles and insiders and outsiders. The gospel is powerful to bring salvation to you and to me. Anyone who believes the gospel is key. And the reason we're spending so much time talking about Romans is because I believe that for us to be on mission, helping other people experience the power of Jesus, we have to have a fundamental understanding of the gospel. And today, at the end of Romans chapter 3, we're getting right down to the nuts and bolts of what the gospel is. So before we go any further, would you just read this verse with me from Romans chapter 1? Read it with me. Here we go. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's the power of God, and uh, that's what we're talking about. So if you've got your Bibles open, Romans chapter 3, we're going to start reading at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You see, he's connecting this back to Romans chapter 1, that the power of the gospel is right here. He's getting down to what's important. He says, there's no distinction, for all have sinned. Turn to your neighbor and say, all. All All have sinned. Turn to your neighbor and say, you've sinned. sinned. (laughs) All right. You didn't like that, didn't you? Okay, so now turn to your neighbor and say, I've sinned. Okay, that's, that's a little more palatable. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. In other words, all of us have been created in the image of God. We have this standard that God created us to live up to. But what Paul is saying is every one of us have failed to live up to the creation that God has meant for us to be. But, and this is beautiful, or he says, and, in the same way we've sinned and fall short, we are justified, this is the good news part, we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, there's a lot of words in there, and I read through it pretty quickly, but I want to pull this apart so we can really grasp what Paul is talking about. He's talking about righteousness. He's talking about justified. He uses the word redemption. There's that really big word in there, propitiation, that he uses. I want us to fully grasp what all these words mean and and put it into a way that we can really understand what Paul is putting forth here. So I want to begin by talking about the nature of God. And if you're taking notes, you can jot some notes down here. The nature of God. In verse 25, if you've got your Bibles open, you can look back at it. He says that God is righteous. The word righteous has its root word in the word right. It means there is nothing wrong in in who God is. He's absolutely holy. He's sinless. Everything is right. That's what the word righteous means. And in verse 26, it says that God is just. God is just. What that word means is that God is entirely fair. 
He's entirely fair. God will never do anything that is unfair to anybody in the cosmos. He is absolutely full of justice. And and Paul just puts that out there. God's righteous and he's just. But this is contrasted with the nature of mankind. And in verse 23, he tells us the nature of mankind. All have sinned, which is why I asked you to turn to your neighbor and say, you've sinned. And then you said, I have sinned. And we have all fallen short of God's glory. And so there's a conflict here because if we want to be connected to God, if we want to have any kind of relationship with God who is righteous and just, we have a problem because none of us are righteous. We've sinned. We've fallen short of God's uh, glorious standard as one translation puts it. Now, I don't know what kind of spiritual experiences you have had uh, but I can remember distinctly one of the first times I became distinctly aware of my own sinfulness. Uh, the church that I grew up in, every summer it would send uh, kids and teens to a Bible camp up near Glacier National Park uh, in northwestern Montana. And I went uh, many years as a kid, and I remember one of the first years, I don't know, I was probably 10 or 11 years old, and, and I went up by myself and, and some other people from our church, but I was away from home for the first time alone. And we were up in this beautiful campground, and we would go to a chapel every night, and we would hear uh, a, 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 a speaker who was hired specifically because he had a gift of speaking to children. And the first night of this camp, he would preach to kids, 11, 12, 13-year-olds, about sin and its destructiveness in, in our lives. And and I don't remember specifically what sin I was consciously aware of, but I remember that night at the end of his sermon, I walked to the front of that chapel and began to pray, and I was just overwhelmed with a sense of my own sinfulness. And I can remember standing there in that chapel, bawling my eyes out. Now, I'm sure part of it was that I was away from home for the first time and I missed my mom. I'm sure part of it was that I had only eaten Butterfingers for the first 12 hours of my day and there was no nutritional value there. Uh, but, but the part I remember most distinctly, though, was really for the first time in my life, I was aware that I had sinned and I had fallen short of the plan God had for my life. We all need those kinds of revelations if we're really going to also fully understand God's grace. So there's the nature of God. There's the nature of mankind. And now here's the problem as Paul puts it here in Romans chapter 3. In verse 25, Paul says that God has passed over former sins. In that verse, one of the phrases he used was divine forbearance. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the patience of God, or we talked about the tolerance of God. Paul says here in verse 25, God has passed over former sins. Now, here's the problem. If God passes over sin, he must be one of two things. Go ahead to that next slide, Jess. If he passes over sin, he must be either not righteous because he's complicit in our sin if he just overlooks what we do, or he must not be just because it's not just to let sin go unpunished. Let me put it this way. Here in the Gallatin County, we have a governmental system 
that punishes people who break the law. And we have a, a public prosecutor, right? Just you work in the justice system, so you can correct me if I'm wrong in any of my descriptions here. But we have a county prosecutor, and anybody who breaks the law, the prosecutor presses charges against them. They have to appear in court. And if there was a man who, who say, knew the county prosecutor, he was a friend, and on some Friday night, he went downtown and went to the Rock and R bar and got plastered and then beat up his girlfriend and gave her a bloody eye, black eye, bloody nose. What do you... I'm not familiar with this kind of behavior. Um, <laughs> anyway, he really, he really hammered his girlfriend, right? And the prosecutor came out and said, you know what? This guy is my buddy. And I'm not going to press charges against him because he's my friend. And I know that he has a good heart. And so because he has a good heart, I'm not going to press charges. I don't want him to go to jail. I don't want, to have to, I don't want him to have to pay a fine. We're just, we're just going to look past this offense. As, as voters and as taxpayers in Gallatin County, what would we do? We would say, this guy's got to go because he's not just, right? The justice system is responsible for making sure that people who break the law get punished. And if God is just and he passes over sins because he loves us, because he knows, Brian, you have a really good heart and you would, you would never do... Uh, we're just going to pass over that. And if this is what God does, then he's either not righteous or he's not just. And this is a problem. And so what Paul tells us here is that there is a solution to this problem. And the solution is found in Jesus. And here's how it works. First of all, he says in verse 24, he says that Jesus justifies us by his grace as a gift. We're going to talk about this more next week in the first message of our next series. We're going to talk for a whole Sunday about what justification is. But for today, let me just give you a, a simple definition. And there's a blank in your notes that you can write this in. What justified means very simply is it's just as if I'd never sinned. If you're justified by Jesus, it's just as if I'd never sinned. And, and Paul tells us that Jesus' grace gives us this position of justification as a gift. But then he also tells us that he redeems us in verse 24. He redeems us. And what that word means is it's paying of a ransom. When we use the word redeem in our, in our contemporary language, we usually use it in terms of like a coupon. Are there any coupon clippers here? Any extreme couponing People that fill their basket. No coupon clippers? Oh, Jody, you are. All right. I knew there was somebody. You don't have to be ashamed. Jesus loves you too. And um, <laughs> I don't know why you're ashamed. It's pretty smart. What do we do with coupons? You clip a coupon out of a magazine or out of the newspaper. You take it to the grocery store and you redeem it for something that is useful. You've got this useless piece of paper. You trade it for something that you want. It's paying of a price. And so when Jesus redeems us, he's paying the price that we owe so that we can receive justification. But then here's the word that I want us to camp out on this morning for a while. In verse 25, Paul says that Jesus is a propitiation. He's a propitiation. Now, this is a word that we don't use very often. 
if, um, if, if you uh, use this word in your everyday language, I would be very, I, I'd be very surprised. Nobody calls up their husband and say, honey, on your way home from work, would you stop at the store and pick up some milk and some eggs and some propitiation? Okay. I mean, that's, that's not a word we use. In fact, most of you probably don't even know what this word means. But it's critical that you learn what this means, and this is why I want to spend some time today. The literal definition for this word is a covering. And if you're taking notes, that's the first thing that I hope you'll write down. Propitiation means a covering, but it's deeper than that. This word in the Greek language is used in two places in the New Testament, and the first one is here in Romans, and the other place it's used in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5, and there this word is translated mercy seat. It's translated mercy seat. Now, you might not know what the mercy seat is either. Up here on the screen, I've got a diagram of uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And if you've ever seen the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, you might remember the Ark of the Covenant. Indiana Jones was on this quest to find the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was this ancient box that was in the temple in the Holy of Holies, the most holy part of the temple, and uh, for, for thousands of years has been lost. Uh, there are Jewish people that claim to know where it is. There's Christian groups that claim to have it. There's actually a Christian sect in Ethiopia that claims they have the ancient Ark of the Covenant. It's fascinating to read some of the stuff that you can find on Google about the Ark. But uh, that, that's kind of, I'm rabbit trailing now. But the Ark of the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies of the temple, and it had these statues of angels with their wings touching, and between the angels, or the cherubim, was this place that was called the mercy seat. It was the covering of the ark, and that that covering, that lid, was where once a year the high priest would come in and would cover that mercy seat with the blood of the sacrifices to bring a covering for the sins of the people. We're going to talk about that a little more in just a second, but this is the same word that Paul uses here in Romans chapter 3 to describe what Jesus does for us. He covers us. He covers our sin with his blood in the same way that this mercy seat was covered with the blood of the sacrifice. Now, the reason I'm geeking out about this is because there's a problem. There's the nature of God, there's the nature of man, there's this problem that if God is passing over sins, he's either not righteous or he's not just. And the solution is that Jesus has provided the justice necessary so that our sins can be forgiven. And I put it this way, if you're taking notes, the sacrifice of Jesus was necessary so that God's forgiveness would be consistent with his character of righteousness and justice. You see, if God just willy-nilly forgives sins, he's not just. But if somebody pays the price for you and for me, then God is both just and he's also forgiving. It's consistent. Does that make sense? Am I, am I, are you with me? Every once in a while, I feel you just glaze over. So turn to your neighbor and say, stop, stop, stop daydreaming. All right. Drink another sip of coffee. Stay with me. <laughs> it's, that, it's that sugar coma, right, that comes after the donuts. 
This is all rooted in Jewish history. And last week I mentioned to you that uh, the night before last Sunday's service was the Jewish high holiday of Yom Kippur. And I mentioned this last week. Uh, The idea of propitiation and the mercy seat and all this stuff comes from the day of atonement that Jews to this day still celebrate. Now, you may not know much about Yom Kippur. It's not as popular a holiday as like Hanukkah. Uh, We're more familiar with Hanukkah because we celebrate Christmas at the same time as Hanukkah. And Hanukkah is the festival of lights and everybody's spinning dreidels and they're giving gifts and it's all just very happy and warm and cozy, right? The Day of Atonement is something much more somber, but it's considered the holiest day in Judaism. And in fact, uh, what Jews do to this day is in preparation for the Day of Atonement, they fast. And they uh, try to atone for their sins by going to anybody that they've offended in the previous year and asking for forgiveness from anybody that they've done anything wrong against. It's really a, a fascinating thing. But in ancient Israel, and it's recorded in the Old Testament, what we find is this very, very serious ritual that the Jewish nation would participate in on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement. And I want to just describe it to you a little bit. What would happen is on this day of Yom Kippur, all the Jewish people would come and they would assemble at the temple. And the first thing that would take place was the high priest would come and he would offer a sacrifice of a bull. And that first sacrifice was just to atone for his own sins and for the sins of his immediate family. And so the goat would be slaughtered and there was all this ritual associated with that. And then the high priest would go and he would wash himself and change clothes. And all these washings took place throughout the day. Uh, but, But there was a lot of attention to cleanliness and purity and removal of anything that was dirty or sinful metaphorically. So the bull was sacrificed first. And then after that, the high priest would be brought two goats. And these goats were selected from a herd because they were perfect. They weren't just a couple of goats that somebody wanted to get rid of, and so they bring to the temple. They were the very best goats that a, that a rancher could produce. They were without blemish. They were absolutely spotless. And these two goats would be brought to the high priest, and the first thing the high priest would do would be to lay his hands on the head of one of the goats, And some sources say that they would wrap the head of the goat with a scarlet cloth, which is why this this goat up on the screen has a, a little scarlet garland around his horns. And this first goat would become what's called the scapegoat. And after they had wrapped the goat with this scarlet fabric, the priest would ceremonially transfer the sins of all the people onto the head of the scapegoat. And then the priest's assistant would do one of two things. They would either take this goat outside the city and release the goat into the wilderness where he would eventually die or be killed by wolves or other predators. Or sometimes they would take him out the city uh, to a large cliff and just push the goat off the cliff. The point was the scapegoat had all of the sins of the people transferred to it and he was sent out to die as a result of those sins. What were they communicating? They were communicating that sin requires death. Now there was a second goat, and you might be wondering, well, what happens to the second goat? The second goat is even 
is even more horrific. The second goat would be taken into the temple and the goat would be slaughtered and the high priest would collect the blood of the goat and would mix the blood of the goat with the blood of the bull that had been sacrificed earlier. And then the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, would go to that mercy seat that I talked about earlier and would smear the mercy seat with the blood of the bull and the goat. And what was that communicating? It was communicating that sin requires death, that sin requires a blood sacrifice, that the only way for the sins of the people to be covered was with the propitiation of blood. Now, there's a couple of things I want to point out to you. First of all, whatever we read in the Old Testament always points to Jesus. And so when we see these things, when we read, you can go back into the Old Testament and read these descriptions, and I've only given you the highlights, but you can read about this whole ceremony, and throughout the whole ceremony, you can see this picture of the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus shed his life blood to become a covering for our sins. Um, one of the other things that I think is really beautiful is that these animals that were sacrificed were always absolutely perfect. Do you know Jesus was the only human being who ever lived that was sinless so that he could be sacrificed for another person? You see, I couldn't give my life as a sacrifice for your sins. You couldn't give your life as a sacrifice for my sins. It wouldn't work. Why? Because we've sinned. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of that standard of God's creation of humanity. But Jesus never sinned. And so when he shed his blood, when he gave his life as a sacrifice, he fit all the requirements for a blood sacrifice. But this is the kicker. Yom Kippur was celebrated Every single year. Every year there had to be a fresh sacrifice made for the sins of the people. It was only temporary. But the sacrifice of Jesus was one sacrifice for all time. Here's what we read in Hebrews chapter 10. It's up on the screen. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never Take away sins. But our high priest, Jesus, offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. And this is why the blood of Jesus is so important, friends. Once and for all, the verdict over my head and the verdict over your head is not guilty cancels guilt, we are saying that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross changes the objective verdict that is over your head right now. See, over everyone's head who is not yet a Christian, guilty is the verdict. And what propitiation does is it changes that verdict to not guilty. Whether you feel it or not, you were guilty. And what Jesus' sacrifice has done for you, whether you feel it or not, is to remove that guilty verdict as an accomplished fact. 
God no longer sees you as a guilty person. Why? Because Jesus, when he died, absorbed all your guilt, not your guilt feelings, your guilt, your actual guilt. So here's this debt that stood against us, our guilt. God canceled the debt. He ripped up the paper and nailed it to the cross. That's what happened. So here's the reality. Your record has been cleared. Expunged from your record, wiped off your resume with a rag soaked in the blood of Jesus is everything you've ever done wrong. Every violation of God's law, every refusal to submit to his authority, every opportunity that you look to to try to get leverage over God by keeping his rules, Jesus' blood has wiped it away. You are objectively not guilty in God's courtroom. The judge has banged his gavel and you know what he said to you? You're free to go. That's worth clapping for. It absolutely is. Because of what Jesus has done for us, friends, God has pronounced us not guilty. And all we have to do is put our faith in him. And so this brings us back to this idea of how do I become an insider? How do I become adopted into God's family? How do I go from the outside looking in to becoming fully reconnected to God? It's our big idea for today. We become insiders by putting our faith in Jesus. It's just that simple. You become an insider by putting your faith in Jesus. Here's how Paul wraps up chapter three. He says, can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It's based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not through obeying the law. After all, is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't he also the God of the Gentiles? Of course he is. And there every Gentile in the room ought to cheer and applaud, right? And Jews too. Any Jews? There were no Jews in first service either. Welcome to southwestern Montana. All right. Um, Well, then, if we emphasize faith, Paul says, does this mean that we can forget about the law? Of course not. In fact, only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law. We're going to get to all of that in the the coming weeks. Something somebody said to me this morning is, well, if my sins have been forgiven, if I've been justified, if Jesus has covered me, does that mean I can live any way I want to and just keep on sinning and keep on sinning and keep on sinning? That's not what Paul says. And we're going to get to that in Romans. And we're going to talk about how Jesus sets us free. He transforms our heart. He empowers us by his Holy Spirit so that once we're justified, once we're covered by his blood, 
blood. We're changed from the inside out, and we joyfully live in obedience to him. And so that's all coming. But today, what I want you to know is you become an insider. You're made right with God simply by putting your faith in him. Let me give you a couple of next steps, three next steps, and then we're going to sing together and we're going to celebrate in communion together, which I'll I'll tell you what, I can't think of a better topic for us to end by celebrating communion together than this. So those of you that are serving, you might want to get ready to serve communion. Here's the next steps I have you for for today. Here's the next steps I have for you today. Number one, become an insider. I want to encourage you to put your faith in Christ. If you're here today and you haven't yet yet stepped over that threshold of saying, I want to be made right with God through the blood of Jesus, I hope that today you'll pray with me in just a few minutes when I invite you to pray and put your faith in Christ and become an insider. It's not about your ethnicity. It's not about being a Jew. Uh, Paul says it's not about being circumcised. It's about Jesus coming into your life and covering you, the propitiation, his blood covering you so that you can be right with God. That's what it's all about. The second next step is this. I want to encourage you to shed the guilt. Listen, I can't tell you how many times I have conversations with Christian people who are just living under this black cloud of the guilt of something that happened long time ago. Whether you've done something awful or something awful has been done to you, um, it doesn't matter. God doesn't want you to live under the shadow of guilt. You've been set free from guilt. You've been set free from shame because the blood of Jesus covers you. So let the guilt go. Let it go. Stop letting it influence your decisions and your actions and your your life today. And then lastly, I want to invite you to read the first half of Romans chapter 4 in preparation for next week. Uh, Our new series, The Verdict, will be starting next week. We're going to be talking about justification next week. And uh, if you've been reading ahead with us, I love it. And I hope you'll stay reading with us as we move forward in the book of Romans. So just before we close uh, this morning, the band is going to lead us in a beautiful worship song. It's one we've been singing a lot the last six weeks probably one of my favorite worship songs that's come out in the last year. And as we sing and we worship together, we'll be served communion this morning. And uh, if you're a guest with us this morning, uh, we want to invite you to celebrate communion with us. We don't practice a closed communion ceremony that's only for insiders. Uh, We invite you as our guest to participate with us. Uh, For those of you that are concerned about gluten, all of the bread is gluten-free. So that makes it easy for everybody to participate. And we will pray after everyone's been served. And I want to ask you to just hold on to the elements until after everybody's been served. And then we'll participate together. So would you sing along with Scott and Kamiko and Jacob and uh, worship as we're served? I want us to pray together. But just before we do, uh, if you're a regular here, you know I love doing things physically that uh, represent spiritual realities and this song has a line that just speaks to me so, so strongly. It says, all who are broken, lift up your face. Amen. 
And you know, you know how it is when you're broken, and you've probably known lots of people like I have who are broken. What do we do when we're broken? We're downcast. We avoid eye contact. We're shamed. We're, we're just hurt. And our whole body language reflects that. And a few weeks ago, we talked about the fact that we're all broken. And we all break differently. My brokenness is different than yours. But what's common to all of us is the healing that comes from Jesus. And so what I want to ask you to do physically this morning, uh, as I pray for us all together, uh, would you just lift up your face to the Lord this morning? Just lift up your face to heaven. And let me pray for you and for me this morning. Lord Jesus, we're just so grateful that we don't have to live in shame anymore because you paid the price that every one of us deserve. Every one of us deserves death. Every one of us deserves to lose our lifeblood. But we don't because you've paid the price. You've covered us with your blood. And so Jesus, will you come and heal the broken places that each of us has? Will you just come and fill in the cracks, repair the broken down walls, our hearts that have been shattered, will you just gather up the pieces and put them back together again? And as we stand here with our heads lifted up, Lord, I pray that you will bring us to a place of reality where, Lord, we won't walk around with bowed heads any longer. We'll lift our heads confidently, knowing that we've been healed by the blood of Jesus. And now, while you just keep your eyes closed all around the room, I'd, I'd like to pray for any of you this morning that maybe have not yet received Jesus into your life. And, uh, and you need to become an insider. And uh, I'm not going to call you out or embarrass you in any way. I just want to pray for you. And if that's you this morning, would you just lift your hand up real high so I can include you in this one last prayer and then we'll receive communion. Thank you, young woman right over here. Anybody else this morning? All right. Can, would you just repeat a prayer after me, everybody in the room? Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for your blood that covers me. I know I'm a sinner and I need your forgiveness. I believe in you, Jesus. I'm putting my faith in you and I'm being reconnected to God. Change me from the inside out. Amen. Let's pray for this bread that we're going to share together. Jesus, this bread represents your broken body, represents your sacrifice. And Lord, as a community of believers, we are sharing in this communion together. And Lord, we're remembering your sacrifice and looking forward to your return as we eat this bread. Bless it, Jesus, we pray. Let's eat together. And now this cup, Lord Jesus that represents your blood, 
that we have talked about this morning and we've celebrated. Jesus, as we drink this blood, we not only remember your sacrifice, but we invite your real presence to come to us. Bless it, we pray as we drink together in your name.